BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Kate Middleton's support for Ukraine echoes Meghan. The Crown gives a sneak peek at its finale and Harry and Meghan are teaming up with Carson Daly. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. The Princess of Wales has been showing her support for Ukraine and its war against Russia, which is obviously great to see. On October the 4th, she visited Vasirazom Ukrainian Community Hub, so this is in a place called Bracknell, which is about 10 miles from her home in Windsor. And she wrote a touching message on a box of supplies, which read, we are all thinking of you. Now, there is, in my view, absolutely nothing wrong in that. No doubt it's not going to stop any Russian bullets. It's not going to stop any missiles from killing people. And no doubt you could argue that it's posturing or, you know, making the job about her instead of Ukraine. But what would be the point? You know, that's kind of mean, right? That would be a mean thing to do to Kate, who's just simply going out and trying to do some good. She's just trying to lift spirits in Ukraine. And dare I say it, probably give the media a slightly more interesting story to write about, which in turn raises the profile of this locally based relief effort. So why then am I saying all of this? Well, the reason is because Kate's message reminded me of something that Meghan once did. And this is not me saying that Kate necessarily copied Meghan. But it is interesting how different some of the media reaction was when Meghan did it. And for those of fragile disposition, some of this commentary honestly was not for the faint hearts. So I'm putting that warning on the notice board right now. So I'm going back here to February 2019 when Meghan visited a charity called 125 in Bristol. And she wrote these inspirational messages on the side of bananas in support parcels for sex workers. So, um, you know, again, nothing wrong in that, of course, sex workers live difficult lives, dangerous lives, and why shouldn't a charity support them? Megan's messages, you know, it was stuff like, you're strong, you're brave, you're loved, produced a backlash from the media, and much, though not all, of what was said about Megan applies to Kate now. Um, and yet, total silence on Kate's gesture politics which reveals a couple of things about how and why the whole public debate about Meghan got so toxic. So I just want to be really clear. I'm not saying that Kate should have been criticised. I'm not inclined to criticise her. I think it's great that she wrote this touching message on a parcel that was sent to Ukraine. You know, Ukrainian people have been through an awful lot and they could do with a morale boost. I think it's great. Um, But what I'm talking about here is also maybe slightly more complicated than you might initially think. So do bear with me and listen to the argument in full. So one quick point here. Um, For me, there are definitely times when gesture politics can be annoying or frustrating, or it just wrongly inserts a completely random celebrity in the middle of a major and very serious issue, a news story, a massive global conflict, for no other reason than the desire of that celebrity to be loved, or for their own self-aggrandizement, or for their career prospects, 
or whatever. Um, but that is not generally the case for royals for a very specific reason. Most royals do not have a day job beyond their charity work. And that state function, the kind of official formal work, that mostly falls to the king. So stuff like the state opening of parliament, for example, swearing in a new prime minister, that's the king's job. You know, your Megans and your Harrys are never going to get involved in that kind of stuff. For most royals, the bread and butter of the public role they perform on behalf of the state, their day-to-day is their charity work. And in that respect, neither Kate nor Meghan are doing the equivalent of, you know, crying fake tears for victims of a natural disaster somewhere that has nothing to do with them. You know, they are required by the palace and through their public role to give back and do good in some form. And these causes are simply the particular charities that they have chosen to support. And, you know, no doubt in both cases, they wanted to make their charity visit as good as possible. And, you know, good luck to them. Like I said, it's it's not about saying that Kate's copying Meghan. I think Meghan herself got this idea to write the message on, on the bananas from a school in America, I think it was. So this is just about how different the reaction was in each case. But I'm going to read you some of the stuff that was written about Meghan. Um, and like I said, you know... Not for the faint-hearted. So Liz Jones, a prominent and at times controversial columnist for the Daily Mail, wrote, The scribbled-on bananas change nothing. Not because they will soon turn brown, destined for landfill. Not because, well, do women on the streets in sub-zero temperatures actually want to eat bananas in the first place? Is the inclusion of one of their five a day a bit of politically correct virtue signalling, when in reality brace yourselves, each of these women's five a day has an altogether different, more shocking meaning. And should they even glance at the slogans, I'm sure the sex workers are intelligent and loosed enough to understand these platitudes are simply untrue, because they are not strong, Liz Jones wrote. If they were, they would seek help to stop selling their bodies. They are not loved. If they were, by a man, by their families, by their friends, they would be given shelter, a job. And they are not special. They know this every time they have sex with a man for money. Now, I'm going to leave for another day her highly dubious contention that the only thing sex workers need to do to find a better life is seek help. I mean, obviously, she doesn't even say who they're supposed to be seeking help from. Um, So I'm just going to park that one. Different issue. But firstly, note her use of the phrase virtue signaling. And secondly, the whole thing... Um, this, you know, this changes nothing, uh, she says, of Megan. So, in other words, writing the message of the, messages on the bananas changes nothing. Well, that can be applied just as easily to Kate in Ukraine. You know, the good morale created by this nice message that Kate wrote on the sides of the box is not going to stop any bullets and it's not going to stop any missiles any more than it's going to stop than the bananas are going to stop predatory men from targeting sex workers. So, you know, the five a day reference, I mean, where do I begin? I think the only thing really to say about that is it's just such a horrendous reference to find in a newspaper. And I'll just leave that there. Uh, The point, though, is that it's not actually the gesture that has provoked the ire of Liz Jones. And if it was, then Kate's message is certainly a gesture, too. You know, I want to read, to just make this point again, I want to read something from Piers Morgan's column as well, because he also got angry about this at the time. Uh, There's some stuff again there that, you know, you might not want to hear while you're eating your breakfast. So if you're eating your breakfast, pause and pick it up again when you've finished. So he wrote, 
I could barely believe what I was watching. Meghan Markle is not a stupid woman. So why did no part of her considerable brain realise that this gesture was ironically a massive banana skin to trip on? Giving schoolchildren an empowering banana with their lunch is one thing. Giving prostitutes an empowering banana after they've spent the night subjecting their bodies to often vile, sexually depraved men is quite another. And now this next bit is where it gets weird. He wrote... There is no escaping the fact that bananas have long been the subject of ribald humour for their phallic shape. Megan's even used them as sexual props before, posting a photo to her old, now-deleted Instagram account of two bananas spooning each other with human eyes, mouths and hands drawn on to portray lovers. Sleep tight was her accompanying message, which was later assumed to be a reference to her then-secret lover, Harry. Now, for those who don't recall, which is probably most uh, most listeners, I would have thought, um, this Instagram picture was, it was like two bananas hugging each other. Uh, it was incredibly innocent and had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with phallic representation and definitely had nothing whatsoever to do with sexual props. So that, you know, who knows what corner of Piers Morgan's mind that particular interpretation came out of. However, the bigger point here is that Piers Morgan and Liz Jones and a whole load of other people who blew up about this at the time weren't angry because the gesture wasn't going to do any good they weren't angry because megan was making herself the heart of the story or because of any unfortunate subliminal connection to bananas um, they were angry because they just don't like socially conscious progressive politics and whatever they might say about free speech they actually don't want anyone else to like it either um, but I think the wider context here is important too. So there was definitely you know, a, a widespread societal backlash against what is often described on the right as woke politics. But there's a kind of more specific um, Harry and Meghan wider context here too, which I want to get into. Uh, this all happened in February 2019. Um, so this is a month after Meghan told Harry for the first time that she was experiencing suicidal thoughts. Uh, for those who have seen the, it was actually the Oprah Winfrey interview um, when she first described this, not the Netflix documentary. Um, but they they had a, a, a visit to the Royal Albert Hall to a Totem by Cirque du Soleil. And then it was before they left for that that Meghan told Harry for the first time that she didn't want to be alive anymore. Um, so that was in January 2019, a month before the bananas. Um, and to give a little potted timeline of the media backlash against Meghan. So... It kind of started, to all intents and purposes, towards the tail end of 2019. Um, no doubt there were some difficult and unpleasant things written about Meghan at the beginning of their relationship when it first came out in, in uh, kind of October, November 2016. But the papers also at that time were running vast quantities of gushingly positive stories about Meghan. Um, and that, you know, persisted through the whole kind of disintegration of Meghan's relationship with Thomas Markle. Sure, yes, there was a lot of stuff about, a lot of difficult stories for Meghan, negative stuff about Thomas Markle, his media interviews, all that kind of stuff. But there was also a huge amount of gushingly positive coverage about Meghan, particularly around the wedding, their engagement, you know, 26 pages of the Mail and the Sun picture, you know, souvenir, picture pull-out, special editions, all of that kind of stuff. The point at which it became quite relentlessly toxic and negative and critical of Megan came end of 2018 into and throughout 2019. And it happened in a couple of phases. The first phase 
is the Palace Backlash era. So this is when leaks about Meghan started appearing in British newspapers. So we're talking here suggestions she was difficult to work for. She was nicknamed Duchess Difficult by the Sunday Times, which is a kind of uh, Rupert Murdoch-owned broadsheet newspaper of record. Um, Sunday paper in Britain. Then you got the uh, allegation that Meghan made Kate cry, that she had a tantrum about Tiara, and so on. So that takes you into January 2019, when she privately tells Harry that this is making her feel suicidal. The public obviously would, won't get to know that until some years later in 2021. So then February the Thomas Markle, 2019, the Thomas Markle situation blows up again. Not a new issue, but never a pleasant one. And this bananas issue for me was a major milestone in the pathway to how the Meghan and Harry story became a culture war in Britain that was about socially conscious socially progressive politics so in other words Meghan and the pa- Meghan and Harry versus the palace arose out of a very real conflict that actually existed internally at Kensington Palace months earlier in summer 2018 if you're a regular listener you've probably heard me make this point numerous times before But if you're not, Harry, in his book, is very clear that the atmosphere in Kensington Palace had been poisoned by rivalry, that he multiple times saw staff members hunched over their desks, weeping by as early as summer 2018, before all of that negative uh, media coverage started in November and December 2018. Uh, But this... So you you have the Palace Backlash era, then the Bananas, for me, is a major milestone in how the negativity towards Harry and Meghan graduated from internal war at Kensington Palace into a new monster with a life of its own that was driven by this wider societal backlash against, you know, what is termed woke politics, wokeism, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think Piers Morgan likes to call it a woke virus. So Meghan versus the palace became Meghan the Wokerati versus the culture warriors in the media. And that was a big part of what drove 2019 to be a year of relentless critical coverage of Meghan. So that in a, in a way that was no longer tied to those very real internal conflicts that were actually happening at Kensington Palace. Now, it wasn't all because of this story. And of course, this story is in itself built on the friction that had existed earlier. You know, the palace backlash era at the end of 2018 kind of, I think, ripped the plaster off for a lot of newspapers that, you know, while they had been snide or sniping at points, were largely very positive about Meghan up until this era. So 2018 palace backlash era rips the plaster off 2019 the media start latching on to this idea that Meghan is a symbol of, you know, woke politics in Britain. And then that fueled a kind of year of constant, relentless negative stories, some of which were incredibly petty and trivial, like, you know, what colour a nail varnish is or, you know, showing her own card or all of that kind of stuff. So for me, it's really significant that something that's so trivial, you know, the distinction between a gesture in support of sex workers versus a gesture in support of Ukraine, both good causes, both important work, could have such drastically different outcomes. And of course, Megan also previously said in 2020 that the year 2019 was almost unsurvivable. And of course, it was not just about the media. A lot of it was also about social media as well. 
you know, there was a lot of negativity that I think in reality, um, analysis indicated originated from really a very small number of accounts, but it, it was a constant presence on social media during that year. And, you know, another thing that it's important to say is that while all of this was going on, you know, those newspapers do not necessarily always speak for the people of Britain. Sometimes they, they speak for a significant cross-section that makes up their readership. Sometimes they run, honestly, a lot of stories that even their own readers don't agree with. And in this particular case, you know, by the end of 2019, Meghan was still very popular in Britain. She was liked by about 55% of the country um, by November 2019. So that is actually more support and more popularity than she had in America in December 2022, for example, shortly before the Netflix documentary came out. So it's important to understand that just because these papers were trying to tear down Megan, it doesn't mean that they were successful. But of course, these these instants operate on two levels. So the first level they operate on is about the relationship between the press and Meghan and Harry. And then the second level is the relationship between the press and their readerships. And one thing that's really striking about Meghan and Harry is that they don't always necessarily seem to be able to see, despite the fact that they must see the polling, they must do. If you were in the palace, surely you would show Harry and Meghan the regular YouGov polling that showed how popular they were. But they didn't seem to me to have a concrete understanding of the fact that they were really popular despite what the papers were writing. Um, And so that emotional reaction that Harry and Meghan had was a significant driving force behind, I think, their decision in the long run that they didn't want to be in Britain anymore. And so even though the press weren't convincing the public to hate Harry and Meghan, it still had a real life consequences. It still had a real life consequence because it had a consequence in the minds of Meghan and Harry, particularly Harry, who obviously viscerally hated the media from long before any of this ever happened. So it is a big issue for me. It's not the only issue. It's not the only issue at all. It may be that Harry and Meghan's departure from the royal family was inevitable, even if this had not happened. After all, they had completely independently, I would suggest, of this particular story, their working environment in Kensington Palace disintegrated so much that Prince William kind of forced them out of the private office there and they had to move their private office to Buckingham Palace instead. So, you know, who knows, maybe things deteriorated so dramatically that it, you know, their, their departure from Britain was inevitable. But I just think it's really interesting because this was the first big example of the culture war backlash against Meghan. I just thought it was quite significant that they've now had no criticism of Kate, quite rightly no criticism of Kate in relation to Ukraine. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, The Crown is preparing for its final season. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you 
with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Netflix has released a teaser for the sixth and final season of The Crown. Now, if you're a fan of the show, there is, I'm sure, sadness as well as excitement in the knowledge that it's all finally coming to an end. And I think the team behind the teaser may well have felt the same way too. So it features all the past queens, Claire Foy, who started it all, Olivia Coleman, Imelda Staunton, they're all in it. Um, and the ghost of Elizabeth's past are only represented visually on a TV screen and in the background of a framed photo. Um, their voices can be heard, though. It's kind of like a speech that's delivered by all three of them because it's stitched together. So it kind of takes you through the timeline of the Queen as told by the Crown. And it's about what it means to be monarch given by three different generations of Elizabeth. So it's powerful and dramatic, both in the sense that it kind of really evokes this kind of end of an era, uh, final last hurrah of a major multi-award winning show, but also because it's quite a kind of thoughtful portrait of the Queen as both a figurehead and a person. So this kind of cobbled together, stitched together speech goes, the crown is a symbol of permanence. It's something you are, not what you do which is what Claire Foy's Queen Elizabeth says. Then Olivia Coleman says, some portion of our natural selves is always lost. We have all made sacrifices. And then we get to Imelda Staunton, who says, it is not a choice, it is a duty. But what about the life I put aside, the woman I put aside? So this is one of the ways that the crown neatly ties together the past and the present without ever really explicitly referencing the kind of modern context. Um, but we all we all know what's there. We all know what the background is. Obviously, last year the Queen died and this year the crown will also die. And so it shows the monarch looking back on her life and asking essentially whether the sacrifices she made in the name of duty were worth it or whether she did too little for herself, for the woman behind the crown. Now, that would be in some ways a slightly oddly kind of nostalgic moment for a queen who was nowhere near the end of her life at the time that all of these events took place. But it is obviously very relevant to a queen um, who we lost only last year. And I think, you know, we're going to get a lot of this in season six, which starts with the events leading up to Princess Diana's death in 1997. So we're going to have her going on holiday with Mohammed Al-Fayed on his yacht, the Jonacle. We're going to have her meeting his son, Dodi Fayed, um, who was her boyfriend at the point that she died. We're going to have them going on this whirlwind holiday romance. And then this dream summer finally coming to a tragic end after she's chased through the streets of Paris by the paparazzi uh, leading, contributing, causing her cart crash in the Pont de l'Alma tunnel. And that will be part one of this show, because for the first time, The Crown is being delivered in two parts. And then part two will go from the aftermath of Diana's death through to 2005. Now, that's the year that Charles and Camilla got married. And we are going to see that depicted. And so it, it seems that that will kind of be the big conclusion to the entire series, where we have 
the queen reflecting on her life, but we also have the kind of renewal and rebirth of Charles and Camilla's wedding. Um, so essentially, I think that a kind of subliminal connection will be drawn between that wedding and the coronation that we've just had in May. Um, it's kind of, you know, echoes through history, I suppose. Um, I'm sure that, you know, we're going to see a lot of soul searching by the Queen about her legacy, probably about the impact. I think there's some reference, if I recall correctly, in the press release and the marketing material to public opinion. So we're going to, I'm sure, see the Queen reflecting on whether the, you know, whether the monarchy can survive after she's gone um, in the context of obviously the public backlash against particularly Camilla um, but Charles as well. And at Charles and Camilla's wedding in real life, it was briefed by the palace that Camilla would never be known as Queen Consort, which she is now. They said at the time that she would be known as Princess Consort, which was always kind of presented as a mark of respect to Diana, um, who obviously was at one point destined to be Queen. Um, so they'll have had a decision to make about whether to get into all of that, whether to deal with it. If they wanted to, that would be a very... Use, a very useful way to draw a link between the past and the present. Um, but perhaps they'll see it as too controversial. I don't know. Um, essentially, though, the legacy of the Diana era does still haunt Charles and Camilla uh, to this day in their popularity, actually, probably on both sides of the Atlantic, but interestingly, particularly in America, uh, even more than Britain. Charles and Camilla are less popular in Britain than, say, William and Kate, for example. But in America, it's it's really stark. Um, Camilla actually has a negative net approval rating. Uh, Charles is on about net, is around about net zero. American boomers are still very loyal to Team Diana, and Camilla is actually, therefore, less popular among her own generation in the US than among Gen Z and millennials, which I think is quite counterintuitive. I think most people would probably assume, especially those who uh, argue vehemently against the crown, people who say that the crown is insensitive and offensive and you know damaging to Charles argue that basically a younger generation don't know what actually happened in the 1990s because they didn't live through that era. They get it all from the crown. And these people obviously say that the crown twists history and that it's not what really happened. But then when you look at the polling, actually in America, it is the people who did live through the 1990s, who did live through this whole era, who actually have the most negative view of Camilla, more so than Gen Z and millennials. So the time period for this season is 1997 to 2005, and these events are relevant to the last few years of royal life, and not only because of succession, but also because Prince Harry's book starts in 1997 after his mother's death, and the actor who plays Harry has actually done an interview saying that the air and the spare dynamic was a useful tool for him to get inside Harry's head and to help him kind of understand the role, understand you know Harry's kind of thinking, his perspective, his mindset. Um, so we might also see kind of flashes of spare in this season as well. Now, the publicity coming out of Netflix seems to indicate that the focus will be more on William than Harry. Uh, which is probably partly them playing it safe. You know, the Harry is probably a kind of messy subject for Netflix. Obviously, they signed him. They've got this multi-year deal with him, which we think they are kind of just working out the end of. Um, if they go too positive on Harry or adopt his perspective wholesale, they could be accused of spinning on behalf of somebody who they have a professional relationship with. Obviously, I'm sure they who have deals with Harry and Meghan and whoever at Netflix signed that deal or like, you know, is the point person to, for communications with them has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with content of the crown, but that is not going to stop headline writers 
uh, especially in certain British newspapers, from running wild and claiming all kinds of things. On the other hand, if they contradict his book, those self-same newspapers may well also seek to argue that it's evidence of a rift between Harry and Netflix. And, you know, Netflix as a corporate entity, like I've said, I'm sure has absolutely had zero to do with the script. But you can just imagine what fun a newspaper like the Daily Mail, for example, might have if they get any hint of a whiff that the crown has, has switched to being negative about Harry. Um, So I can see why, for that reason, the programme makers might just think that it's actually easier for everyone to give Harry a bit of a swerve um, and then focus more on William. Um, Obviously, even that, though, could be difficult to do because how do you depict William when Harry has said so much about that era if you pick a version of William's story that contradicts the things that Harry said then that too could still be interpreted as undermining or contradicting Harry. And there are some things in this whole period that it might be very difficult not to depict. So will they show Charles telling Harry that Diana has died? Now, he, Harry describes that in quite a detailed way in his book, how it happened, when it happened, where he was. And he says that Charles didn't hug him and also suggests that he was kind of, you know, Charles did his best to kind of console Harry and I think I think put a hand on his shoulder or his leg or something um, to try to be a supportive parent, but ultimately also did leave him alone in his bedroom to kind of process his emotions until it was the normal time for royal family members to wake up, um, which is obviously quite a kind of striking um, and moving image. So will they show that? You know, if they show that, that is Harry's narrative um, and they may well be criticised for doing so. But if they show something different, then they're contradicting Harry. Also, Harry said um, he and William didn't want Camilla and Charles to marry. So again, that's another really difficult one. Do you, you know, if they're going to show the wedding, do they just not show Harry and William at the wedding? That might be kind of weird for a viewer. So if you show them at the wedding having a great time, does that almost feel like it's contradicting or ignoring what Harry put in his book quite directly, including quotes uh, saying that he and William basically kind of begged Charles not to marry Camilla? So it's a real minefield. And what about Harry saying William ignored him at Eton and said, pretend we don't know each other? You know, we know that Netflix have said that William will be depicted at Eton in the aftermath of Diana's death and seemingly kind of trying to come to terms with it too. So will they show Harry there as well? Or are they just kind of going to show show William at Eton and seemingly ignore Harry? Um, in which case, again, are they just kind of sidelining him because he's the spare and not the heir? Um, these are all questions that obviously we're going to find answers to soon enough. But the last two seasons have both of them provoked a massive backlash in the UK media and the UK press. Less so, of course, in America. But, you know, an organisation like the Daily Mail obviously is international anyway. It's got a big US audience. So some of it may get through to people in America. And I think, you know, last year it started off around mid-October, I'd say. So, you know, set your watches. Um, you may well suddenly become aware of some very angry Daily Mail columnists and who knows, maybe even former prime ministers because last year, former UK prime minister John Major was among those to speak out against the crown. Um, And if you start to hear a lot of hot air coming from West London, then you will know that details from the final season have started to leak out. Um, I, for one, am going to watch it as soon as I get my hands on some screeners. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure it won't all be completely historically accurate. And I'm sure that there are going to be some exceptional performances and some very ropey performances that are actually nothing like the real people. However, it is fiction. 
It's a drama and I don't see any reason why people shouldn't engage with it on that level and enjoy it. Um, And it will be the end of an era for royal drama. For now, I'm going to just take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, Harry and Meghan's foundation is holding its first summit and it is about mental health. So stay with me. I'll be back in just a moment. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Harry and Meghan are preparing to chalk up another first. Three years after their move to America, their Archerwell Foundation is hosting its first summit, and it's going to be titled the Archerwell Foundation Parent Summit Mental Wellness in a Digital Age. Um, now, like many parents, they are clearly concerned about how young people are coping emotionally in the era of social media. And there'll be parents at the summit who have experienced tragic loss, um, who Harry and Meghan have been working with behind the scenes. So clearly that will be a very moving event, I think. Um, and it's all part of the Project Healthy Minds Annual World Mental Health Day Festival. Uh, this is taking place on the 10th of October. So by the time you listen to this podcast, it may even have already happened. The summit will also have Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, uh, who will join a conversation moderated by Carson Daly. Um, and so this is all in New York City. Harry and Meghan's love affair with New York continues. And, you know, I kind of feel like they love the California lifestyle, you know, the space they've got out there, the weather, but they kind of love New York for work. I kind of think actually maybe they prefer New York professionally, you know, like once it comes time to do their jobs, they actually kind of prefer New York. Like maybe if Doria had been in New York, would they even have moved to California at all? And I kind of get it as well because New York and London are quite similar, in my opinion. The subway and the tube, the swearing, the population density, the swearing, the hipster bits like Williamsburg and Shoreditch. Not that Harry is very Shoreditch, really. He's not very Williamsburg either. But you know what I mean. They're very similar cities, hustle and bustle and lots of angry people. Um, and this will be Harry and Meghan's, I mean, it'll be their umpteenth trip to New York, but it'll be their first trip to New York since May when they were involved in what they're spokesperson described as a two-hour near-catastrophic car chase. Um, Obviously, there was a bit of a debate about that, and the NYPD kind of toned it down a little bit, but needless to say, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think this event may be less likely to to attract paparazzi attention. Um, The other one was like a kind of big evening do, like an awards gala, and I think the paps wanted to know where Harry and Meghan were going afterwards in case they went to meet another celebrity, or who knows, maybe they've got some secret property in New York that they were going back to. 
Um, we don't know, um, but clearly the Paps were after them for something. So, you know, maybe that maybe this will be more low-key, less likely to get the attention of photographers, but we shall see, and of course, don't count on it. That is it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. 